My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Woodbury. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Aquarium Drunkard's weekly talk show podcast interview series, Transmissions. I'm so glad to have you here with us. Right now, you are hearing behind me a little bit of Surrender from the new suicide compilation of the same name. Uh, and that's the topic of today's show today is, is one member of Suicide, the late Alan Vega. I'm joined by Liz Lemire, his widow and a creative partner and a de facto manager for a lot of the latter half of his career, as well as Jared Artraud, who was uh, one of Vega's collaborators and a big fan and a member of the Vacant Lots. Together, the two of them have been responsible for the posthumous uh, releases from the late Alan Vega, uh, It and uh, Mutator and Alan Vega After Dark, uh, which was a project that I was uh, lucky enough to contribute the uh, the liner notes to, thanks to the involvement of producer Ben Vaughn. Um, but yeah, I was really excited to get a chance to speak with the two of them. Uh, Liz is also a, a recording artist, and she's got a, a really cool new record called Keep It Alive coming out May 20th on In the Red. And Jared is, of course, a creative, uh, you know, force on his own. But we got together uh, to sit down and discuss um, really the creative philosophy and spirit and drive of Alan Vega. I find Alan to be one of the most interesting and compelling figures to emerge from the, I mean, really proto-punk scene, you know, and uh, Suicide, infamously one of those bands that was almost too punk for the punks in the late 70s uh but we got into uh we got into his his work in suicide alan's work in suicide his work on his own his work as a visual artist uh, his friendship with rick okasic and a lot more um and it was really cool to get a sense of what's going on in terms of the vega vault uh which is this vast trove of material that alan left behind alan uh, big on creating, uh, not so careful when it came to the actual creations themselves. He just sort of uh, made a thing and moved on and uh, was always fueled by that spirit. Uh, I think David Lynch kind of talks about the art life, and I think that Vega is a great uh, prime example of what living the art life is like. Um, anyway, it was really a tremendous situation to get into uh, into it with these two and to speak with them about Vega's work and his life and his his spirit and I'm really looking forward to sharing that talk with you. Last week I, I think I mentioned that right before I recorded this interview I got some terrible news that a, that a friend of mine who uh, I hadn't been in touch with for decades at this point but at one point um, I, was, I was really close with this kid named Sean growing up in a small 
Arizona town called Coolidge. Very rural town. There wasn't a lot going on. And Sean and his brother Tim lived just down the street from me. Uh, and there were, uh, for a few years, we were pretty much inseparable. Sean, my brother Brad, and I. And, uh, and uh, right before I sat down to record this conversation, I got word that Sean had passed away. Um, and it was uh, kind of a shock and it hit me really hard. And uh, I didn't really even stop to think about it until after this conversation was done. But just something about the confluence of it really made me feel like it was necessary to uh, to acknowledge that and to acknowledge the fact that uh, that Sean left behind um, you know four kids and uh, I just want to send out a word of encouragement to anybody who's struggling right now in terms of their mental health in terms of um, whatever whatever problems might be uh, facing you I think we are as a people as a human race going through a truly uh, a truly difficult time um i know almost everybody i know is struggling right now in some sense or another and, and there are those of us who are lucky enough to mostly uh be able to keep the wheels on the road or have a roof over our head or any of the other things that we uh we do have to be thankful for but um in this time of real intense struggle and real intense sadness and despair um i just want to put it out there that if you are struggling there are resources there are people who care and and it sounds like a cliche or it sounds like a kind of a goofy aphorism to say you know that there's always tomorrow but but really the truth is that you know each day is an unwritten page. I just want to, as a word of encouragement, uh, as a way of dedicating uh, this episode to my old friend Sean, uh, I just want to put all that out there and, uh, and, and say that somebody like Alan Vega, who is gone uh, but leaves behind this remarkable body of work, is a testament to that idea of continual creative spirit and creative drive and... Uh, the uh, the open-ended possibilities that are afforded uh, us by by the time we have on this earth we don't know how long we'll get um, but we have the opportunity and the uh, the chance to make the most of it so um, please pardon my absolutely clumsy phrasing here and my sort of goofy uh, trite way of acknowledging this it's a, it's a it's a weird thing and I know that's not something we do all the time here in the opening installments of transmissions but uh, we're doing it now this one goes out to you Sean um, yeah the Vega vault there's lots in there and we're gonna get into it uh, so here's my conversation with Liz and Jared I hope you enjoy it be sure to check out keep it alive Liz's great record on in the red uh, pick up this new suicide comp surrender it's really incredible and uh, it's got a great, great set of liner notes by Henry Rollins. So um, without further ado, let's get into it. Thanks so much for being here with us. I really hope that the show brings you some comfort and some excitement. Uh, I know it, it does me. And uh, and uh, with all that out of the way, here's my conversation with Liz and Jared. Thanks so much for listening to Transmissions. It's always a pleasure to be here with you. Hey. 
Hey, Transmissions listeners, are you a musical artist or in a band and you're just not sure how to get started sharing your music with the world? I want to tell you about DistroKid. DistroKid makes music distribution fun, and uh, here's the important part. It makes it easy with unlimited uploads and artists like yourself keeping 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million-plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music onto Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. DistroKid has just launched a new iPhone app, which allows you to upload your tunes, earn royalties, check your streaming stats, and add lyrics, credits, and metadata. Everything you need to do to get your music out there and resonating with listeners around the world. Head over to distrokid.com backslash VIP backslash Aquarium Drunkard to get started now. Transmissions listeners can enjoy 30% off their first year's membership. That's distrokid.com backslash VIP backslash Aquarium Drunkard. Head over to DistroKid and get your sounds shared with your listeners. Uh, we were Liz and I were just discussing the virtues of seeing the glass half full versus seeing the glass half empty. So half uh, empty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we've already we've already this far into the interview, which has just now started. Um, identified a key element of your guys's working relationship. We've got a glass half full and a glass half empty, and I think that equals. I don't. What does that equal? It doesn't cancel the glass out. I think it. And Liz is somehow... on time and I'm late, so it's all working out really perfectly. Well, the, the key, Jason, is that the glass is refillable. Oh, that's a that's a great that's a great point. And 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 considering the fact that we're here to discuss the work of Alan Vega, uh, so it'd be and... filled with vodka. <laughs> Only after midnight, though. Yeah. Come on. Oh, that's so. Uh, that's that's amazing. I I think about how I've been reflecting, obviously, on uh, on Alan's work, and and I'm a massive fan, and uh, it was a, a, an absolute huge huge honor to work with Ben Vaughn on on writing the liner notes for the After oh. Dark release. Um, and although I only spoke with Alan once in my in my work as a like a pop culture music writer guy i got the sense that he definitely believed that the glass was refillable and it seemed like the tap never shut off with him he just was constantly creating i i wonder if to start this conversation off if if what was alan's work ethic like what was like a typical day in alan's alan's life was he creating pretty much all the time jason i love this question because alan would say i'm never there's no vacation Right. As a creative person, he everything he did was through the lens of viewing it as a potential for experiencing something new that he hadn't mm. seen or heard before. And it was fascinating to watch. Yeah. Um, one of the first things I noticed about him, it was almost like a childlike ability to see things that we see every day or hear things that we all hear every day and experience it in his own unique way as if it were completely <laughs> the first time he was hearing it. Yeah. Like, how do you do that? But yeah. yes, so because of that, though, 
everything. And, and he would joke because, you know, people say that I'm, you know, I'm not working, but I'm always working. And it was true. I mean, he'd go out in the street and pull things in that, you know, found objects in from the street, watching TV. Again, he would be taking photographs or filming or recording sounds off the TV in the street. Um, just everything about his day-to-day -day existence really connected somehow to the creative process, which was beautiful because he was free to do that. And that's, I think that's a very special gift to have because he used to joke and say, I could live in a refrigerator box in the Bowery. He had very little material needs yeah. and he didn't have a lot of need for um, recognition from the outside world. He, he really truly was purely focused on creating, fuck them if they can't take a joke. That was one of his favorite <laughs> expressions he would say to me, which was very freeing for me personally, because I tend to be a bit of a perfectionist and just letting go of other people's expectations is a very freeing thing. So yeah. long-winded yeah. way of saying, yes, his I think his work ethic was very special. Did he, did he go to a nine to five, you know, punch the clock job? Never, not since he worked for the welfare department in the 60s. Um, when he made that decision to leave his domesticated life in 1970 or 69, 70, after seeing Iggy, um, he literally never had another, you know, traditional job other than being an artist. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that, you know, it seems like, a lot of the a lot of the way people talk about Alan Vega's work and suicide's work and um you know his his sort of his his whole catalog i think there's there's a lot of focus and attention paid to the intensity of the music and the sort of um sometimes very bleak sensibility and sometimes overpowering sensibility and all of that is is a part of what he made and what made him such a compelling musical figure but i think that there seems also to be a kind of creative playfulness uh, that is at work as well, right? You know, and I feel like when you look back over the the records and and his artwork, I think you, I mean, I'm, I'm just so excited to speak with the two of you about this because you were there firsthand. Um, it, it seems to me like he almost had what seems to be like a magical belief that like if you believe something interesting or cool will happen something interesting and cool will happen does that make does that sound does that sort of sound right i mean when i spoke with him about cubist blues the record he made with ben vaughn and alex chilton um he seemed to, he was like we never i didn't think about any of it i never i never thought mm -hmm. don't think stop thinking if you think you're fucked basically you know and uh mm -hmm. and 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 to me that sort of like almost instinctual creative thing he just seems very free in that regard and i wonder if you guys have a sense of where that freedom he felt came from what was it rooted in i love this question um you, you know alan and the magical belief that if you believe it it will happen there was also a sense of there are no mistakes. Yeah. There are no expectations. We're going to just be in the moment and we let whatever's happening kind of become what's going to happen, if, if that makes sense. Um, so the process was so freeing. The other thing that's interesting is he never took himself too seriously. And that the playfulness that you're talking about, um, that was very present always. 
And I think that also allowed him that freedom because he could kind of write it off and, hey, you know, we're just fucking around where, you know, whatever happens, <laughs> happens. He also wasn't precious about his work it, with his visual art. He could paint something and then paint over the same canvas <laughs> or just toss it out in the street. Ivan Karp used to freak out because he would do shows and then Alan would literally throw the sculptures out into the garbage <laughs> after the show was done. I mean, who does that? So he didn't have that. And he also didn't have an ego about his work. And that's why he was great to collaborate with. And Jared can, can speak to that. Um, he was very free about, you know, we would, we would pack up some of his visual arts and send it over to Europe to be shown. And they'd be like, well, how do you want these sculptures? We'll just dump them on the floor in any way you want to arrange them. That's the way that they're meant to be. <laughs> and it's, it's the same kind of thing with the music, but I, I'm going to let Jared speak to that and about the, uh, the process because he experienced that as well yeah I mean I think it harkens back to the first question you asked too like Alan truly lived and breathed art I mean unlike any artist I've ever met and I think you know his process was so fluid and so innovative and intuitive and you use the word instincts I think that's like dead on the money um mm -hmm. you know because you know I sometimes think of Alan like in terms of the process you know in a non-traditional musician way, you know, whereas, you know, a musician picks up a guitar, strums some chords, and, you know, they have a chord progression, and then you get a melody and you, you start piecing things together. I almost look at Alan, you know, that he came from like a different point of view, like a visual artist working in sound, almost like if Jackson Pollock made a record or something like that, where, yeah, yeah. you know, there is this canvas, but the canvas itself, which is blank, but it's also tapped into like the universe and the cosmos. So it's just both finite and infinite, um, you know, usage of time and space and the, and the way he perceives sound and the way he experimented with sound, like a sculptor would with material is closer to how I kind of approach or think about Alan's music, whether it was back with Suicide or, you know, up to, you know, Mutator or It or any of his solo records. Um, you know, I think there is a lot of the sculpting of sound and putting things and assembling things together. And so, you know, when you speak about this kind of, not childlike, but this kind of, you know, uh, you know, more freeing approach, I think, you know, for Alan, there it was spontaneity and mm -hmm. it was, you know, and it was kind of accepting, you know, whether who you were working with, whether it was Cubist Blues or, you know, the countless records he made with Liz or the records he made with Marty with Suicide, you know, there's the studio and the studio becomes an environment and there's some ideas that you have in mind, like free jazz, you know, certain parts are written out. And there's like, you know, four or five sections that are written out, whether it's Ornette Coleman or Albert Eiler. And then the rest is sort of like, let's see what the fuck happens. Yeah. And I think, you know, Alan really embraced that. And you can hear it when we were working on Mutator and going into these sessions. You can really, you know, you stumble upon, you know, the, the, the exploration of ideas and how Alan, you know, for me was is so inspiring because there's this fearless approach where, you know, someone might hit the wrong button. It might reverse a track and Alan would be like, Oh, this is fucking great. Like, I love it. Yeah. You know, or he would just put yeah. his finger exactly. down on one note and it would create something and it'd be a, you know, to an, you know, to some person, a cacophony of sound and to Alan, it was like a whole building of a symphony and let's send yeah. it to this thing and morph it into this thing. And there really is 
you know, if you look at his light sculptures and you listen to his records and you look at his writing, there is this connectedness. Wouldn't you agree, Liz, with this filter that it, you can kind of see it regardless of the medium that Alan was working in? Absolutely. And Alan would say, no matter what I do in whatever materials I happen to be using, it has my fingerprints on it. Like you can tell it came from Alan, Mm -hmm. which is which is pretty amazing because there was no one distinctive sound or style. Um, It was always morphing. And again, I think that comes out of being very connected to the moment. He would also say that, you know, I'm a new person. Every, every moment and every day, we're, we're a new person, right? Mm-hmm. D- depending on what our experiences have been. have been, um, And they impact us as, as human beings. And that comes through in the work as well. So I couldn't possibly recreate what I did two days ago or five years ago or 10 years ago because I'm a different human being at this point and our world is different and everything is changing constantly. So he embraced changed. Yeah. And, and you know, and that's that's one of the things I loved about him as well. And another technique to add to this that was really interesting in, in my discovery when working on Alan's music with Liz and mixing and producing it, um, there's really the power of the performance and you trust in that yeah you know for example like when you go into a vocal booth or when you're working in pro tools or logic or, and you do a vocal take it's very easy to go like oh i fucked up here or let's you know tune this or let's go back and punch me in here i'm going to do the verse again or do the you know alan what i love so much about his music is he approached it almost like you hit the stage there's no fuck ups when you're on stage mm-hmm. and you're playing live like wait wait hold on let's start the song over again or maybe like the brian jones time <laughs> it's like oh, fuck it. you're all fucking doing it wrong let's start out but with alan it, there is the power of the performance and i think and like i mean to say like oh hey you want to go back in and do another take i mean liz what would alan say i mean you could just kind of hear him going oh, like, <laughs> yeah, like another take. Well, that's, like what the fuck although he what would but Jason and Jared, he would do that because I just want to hear that he would go in and he would do a completely different performance. And that's the beauty of it, because in the vault, we now have all these other performances that were equally special. Yeah. But yeah, you know, so that's that's amazing, too. But but that's so right, Jared. It was all about the performance he would do. His his performances in one take when he did sh- live shows, he would never do the same performance of a song the same way twice. It wouldn't even be close. <laughs> he yeah. didn't even want to know. He didn't want to know the lyrics or anything. It would always be freestyle because he had to be in the moment. He didn't want to rehearse. He didn't even like to do sound check. He wanted to just roll onto that stage absolutely fresh, having no you know expectations as to what was going to happen, even with Marty. Remember that show they did at Webster Hall in mm-hmm. 2015? They hadn't seen each other for almost a year. They rolled on from separate sides of the stage. Alan didn't even know what the set list was. <laughs> I mean, Marty had written it out and put it in front of him on the floor. Well, we, basically, we did that show, and when we were like, we were like, "Where's Alan during soundcheck?" And Marty's like, "Oh, he's not coming to soundcheck." What? Like- no, he never. <laughs> I, Even with with me at the with the solo stuff, I always <laughs> sound check because he wanted to be completely fresh. Yeah, and he wasn't afraid of that. What if there are fuck ups? Great, perfect. We'll just we'll just flow right into whatever's happening. That's so, that's yeah. that's so fascinating. And I mean, yeah. What's funny is that when I when I did speak with him about Cubist Blues, um, as a as a writer, you know you're always after these questions, right? Like who, what, when, where, and then the most important one, why? And I I asked him something like, well, why did you approach it that way? 
and in just totally in like that <laughs> way that I that I he spoke the entire interview. He was like, "There is no why." Like he was like so like put off yeah. by that by that notion, and I I found that really riveting. And from a creative standpoint, I think it's just so fascinating. There's another part of me that goes, "Okay, so for for the two of you who are his collaborators, or for Marty, or for whoever else is involved, there's got to be some level of frustration too, right? Like, oh, what are we gonna do? I mean, I, or, or or do you just learn to let go of that frustration?" by virtue of working with Alan? How, how, does, how, does that, how does that feel? Jason, I love this question because I think he had this amazing ability to free the other people. I don't think Ben or Alex or maybe Marty, the relationship was a little bit different sure. um, or, or Jared, but mm -hmm. I think working with him in that type of environment freed you up to kind of let your hands go, so to speak, as we say in boxing, just, just, see what happens. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't think there was frustration because Alan would be totally open to whatever happened. It wasn't like he was going to be like, Oh, you fucked up. What are you doing now? You know, <laughs> he was like, right. even though we had this crazy energy. And when I first met him, people would be very intimidated by that energy. He was one of these, wear your emotion on your sleeve kind of guys. He, his bark was worse than his bite because he was very intense and people sometimes misread that. Um, but once you got to know him and realized that he was a total sweetheart and yes, he could, he could um, vent at a situation, but never at, at the person. And, you know, so again, I, I don't think there was, was frustration in that. I think it was more of a freeing thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I would agree. I would, I think, you know, if there's a connection, um, you know, and you, you know, if there's like a sincere connection, you're not trying to like one up him or try to like, you know, you know, let him be, I think, let me, let me step back. I think Alan was, you know, he would trust his collaborators and also encourage you to do your thing. You know, mm -hmm. I, I remember like so many interactions I had with Alan where it was sort of like, what do you think? And it would, you know, he would spin it back. Like, well, what do you think? And he would be genuinely mm -hmm. interested to work with someone or have them do their thing. So like so yeah. often when we were working on mutator, for example, you know, I always felt like I had two Allens on my shoulder, like on my left side. It was like, the, hey, I fucking love this shit, man. The other side's like, what the fuck are you doing? You know, like, hey, don't fuck that shit. Leave that fucking shit. Don't put a fucking delay on it. The other one's like, oh, wow, it's fucking delay is great, man. But it's it's the kind of like, you know, tapping into a very intuitive. And I feel like the way I've approached music, too, is very intuitive based. It's not like reading sheet music and thinking like, well, you know, D minor goes with A minor. I think. You know, it's sort of like this connecting with Alan on this like Miles Davis approach. Like, give me an instrument, I'll give you mm -hmm. a sound. If you give Alan a synthesizer, like he'll give you a fucking, he'll come up with a song or come up with a record or give him a drum machine and he'll get more sounds out of it. I think there was, you know, this very genuine, genuinely kind of almost like a visual artist approach, you know, working with music as if it was, you know, paint or if it was, you know, a pencil on paper. And I think when working with collaborators, you know, he was very much interested in, you know, seeing how far you could, he could take it with the person he was working in. And I think, you know, encouraging more than frustrating, whether it was Marty yeah. and you can even see shit when they were on stage and he'd be like, Hey, fucking that sounds great or something. Like you can, you can sense and I'm working in the stories I've heard about, you know, working with Liz, you know, Alan working with Liz for so many years. And, you know, their engineer for so many years, I've just all I've ever heard was or with Henry Rollins, 
we're store or Rick Ocasek, we're stories of like, you know, Alan embraces, you know, the environment and the people he's working with. And I think as Liz was saying to kind of re-echo that, and that's really inspiring and encouraging. And I think, you know, my feeling was that Alan would never want you to feel like in his shadow or like he's the fucking superstar. But like, mm-hmm. hey, if we're going to do this thing together, like, let's just make it the best fucking thing that there is. And the element of surprise, like in a military sense, that's how the greatest things in music come about. What I learned from Alan was just in the accidents or the no notes or the fucking mistakes mm-hmm. or the fuck ups where like, you know, I stumble on something and said something by accident. He's like, that's a fucking great line. Right. Yeah, and I think with sound with sound too like how many times that you guys were in the studio liz and alan or someone or perkin or something would hit a fucking button and it would send it into a different territory and alan would probably be like oh man you know like this is fucking great yeah no absolutely and and there was very little ego he 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 really was there to kind of push you outside of your boundaries and i think that that's one of the greatest gifts of working with someone who you're collaborating with yeah. Um, yeah. And I love Jared. I love your Miles Davis reference because Miles was one of Alan's heroes. Yeah. He just loved his whole aesthetic, his whole approach. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, when Alan first invited me to come into the studio with him, um, I was just a drummer. And I'm like, I don't know. He's like, you're going to, you're going to play all these machines and stuff. They're all, these. <laughs> I'm like, what? He's like, no, you've got a great sense of rhythm. So Miles Davis used to love working with people who weren't trained musicians. Yeah. The session musician can open the playbook and give you all this stuff that you've kind of heard before, but we're going to stumble on shit. We have no idea where it's coming from. And that's yeah. what I want. I want to be there with someone who just has a good sense of, rhythm because it's all it all starts with rhythm it's all about the movement of the sound in space and time and that was the greatest lesson i learned from him and i love what jared said too about alan being a sculptor because it was it was just like crafting and sculpting sound and layering it in and it just amazing there were no rules and because of that i think it really did free up the people that when he did collaborate because he he brought that kind of aesthetic to it. You know, we're going to just see what happens here. There was I think yeah. Ben Vaughn yeah. would, would agree with that. Ben loved, you know, collaborating with Alan because, because of that, because he didn't have any set, you know, he walked in with lyrics for like one song. They're going to do a song together. However many hours later, they've got a whole album when they did Cubis Blues. And Alan loved that. He, yeah, he had one so night. much fun in that session. One night. Yeah. And Alex Chilton sitting cross-legged on the floor with the guitar and Ben. I mean, they just literally, Alan's got the New York Post and he's flipping through and he's coming <laughs> up with lyrical ideas just based on headlines and off he goes. And it was just amazing. Yeah, there's a story that Alan told me that I'll never forget. And I, I remember it in a very fractured or fragmented way that maybe Liz, you would know the full extent of the story, but Alan had said something around the time of like, I don't know if it was before he met Marty or around the time he met Marty and he was in New York City and there was still this kind of like, you know, kind of beat generation kind of free thing that would happen or with musicians. And, you know, he walked into a room, I think it was like a basement room or something. And there were like, you know, uh, like a handful of musicians and, you know, everyone was doing something or doing some sound. And Alan was part of it. And it was like this group together. And it had been for fucking 20 minutes, for 40 minutes. 
and no one was fucking like making eye contact or talking. There was no breaks and all the sound was happening. And then suddenly, simultaneously, they all just fucking stopped and no one said anything. And they all just like dispersed and walked away. And I just have this like visual of Alan when he was telling me the story and he like closed his eyes and looked back and he's like, man, that was like the fucking best. Like that was fucking yeah. it. Like that's the fucking shit. Like I'm fucking telling you, like that's music like that shit and, and, and that's and, magic yeah mm-hmm. and that's like the thing of the magic of alan too is it's like it's also what you can express in the sp- like as much as there's this spring and childlike there's also this like intensity of like spirit and there's this, mm-hmm. this inexpressible and, and stuff that you can't say and i'm not going to say it's spiritual or metaphysical or religious it's really not it's beyond that it's like this kind of like almost mm-hmm. like cosmic shit and Alan mm-hmm. was tapped into it in a way that like no one I've ever met and and that kind of story and Alan's art and his music really taps into this kind of like this higher whatever you want to call electricity or thing you want to call it's it energy yep and it's yeah. also a magnetic force that draws people to that force Definitely. over all the years of being with Alan he never sought out anything again he was so focused on creating but people and things and opera would come to him yeah and, and I, I think they were magnetized to this energy mm-hmm. he had a very intense life force very intense and sometimes yeah. people would, would would couldn't deal with it yeah but again it was it was truly coming from a beautiful place you know, and, and there's that common that duality of the darkness and the lightness sure. that that Jared has has seen in his work. Um, you know, and we all have all of that in us. To yeah. Different degrees. Oh yeah, abs- absolutely, Liz. When you first met him, th- was that life force apparent immediately? Oh, Jason, <laughs> it, it was like we were each struck by lightning because I tend to be a pretty intense person myself, <laughs> and I I had been you know I was playing drums in punk bands. By, by at night and by day, I was working on Wall Street in this really intense law firm environment with investment banker. I mean, it was crazy. I don't know what I was doing there, but I just wanted some financial security. So I'm like, I'll do this for a few years and then I'll pivot away from it. But yeah, so we each had, and, and he, I didn't look like a lawyer. I, you know, when he made, but we, yeah, we, it was like immediate and the intensity of his uh, of his energy was was so apparent and it was at the Gramercy Park Hotel and he had the his light sculptures were on the on the wall he had guitar pedals and and rhythm machines all linked together on the floor I mean, it was just like <laughs> what is going on in this room yeah when I walked in there it was just crazy a, a, a good friend of mine was the sister she was also a lawyer on Wall Street and she was the sister of his guitarist Mark Cooch at the time and he had just released Just a Million Dreams on Electra Records and they were throwing a big party for him at the Palladium so we went to they invited me to come I didn't know who Alan was I didn't know who Suicide were and they but they knew that I was into music and they invited me to come to this party so that's how I first met him but yeah it was it was instantaneous and it was it was an electrical energy thing I mean he all night he kept breaking away from people who were trying to talk to him to come over and keep talking to me um and and I and then he went away on tour and the whole time he was gone I was thinking about him and as soon as he got back I picked up the phone I had heard from Dory is the guitarist sister that he was back and I picked up the phone and called him at the, at the Gramercy Park Hotel. And he's like, when can you come over? We were, I've been thinking about you the whole time I was away. Da, 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 the same thing. <laughs> oh, so, we, wow. and then we were pretty much together 
you know, from that point on. So, you, yeah, but it was it was immediate. I really love that. Well, uh, I I knew that this was going to happen to me during this talk. I was like, every single you're going to you're going to want to ask like 19 different things in response <laughs> to each uh, answer. And I knew it was going to happen and it's happening. What I'm going to say is one. Uh, I really loved the, the the short documentary "Just a Million Dreams," which which really documents your your life with Alan at home, uh, Liz. Mm-hmm. And there's this one scene that uh, is lodged in my head. It's it's the scene where he's watching "Everybody Loves Raymond" and he's and he's laughing, laughing. <laughs> and to me, I that you know it's funny because I feel like oh. there's something inherently myster- mysterious about about him. Uh, I think Jared, you you. You articulated this very nicely when you were saying, like, uh, you know, it's not even that you want to put it in terms of like a specific metaphysical belief system or specific religious sensibility. Although all that stuff kind of is threaded throughout the work. I was thinking about how screaming Jesus, prayer, prophecy, there's and all the crucifixes, a lot of crucifixes involved with things. So there Mm -hmm. is some of that. But I like what you're saying in terms of the sort of mysteriousness of what he's drawing from. But that scene where he's watching TV and laughing, to me, it just, it was like, it, yeah, I don't, it humanized him in such a beautiful way. Just, oh. And it was so much fun to, to, to spin that. But then the other thing that, of course, is rattling around in my head is that, you know, Liz, at the time when you first met him, he, he was sort of, there, there was a moment where, where people thought maybe Alan could be more of a conventional pop star or rock mm-hmm. figure, you know? And mm-hmm. so, I feel like I've like I've just like wandered uh, away from any sort of coherent question to ask, but I guess I guess <laughs> I'm interested I'm interested in, in in hearing more about that mm-hmm. how how he how he went about following his gut and what his thoughts were in terms of like his own inner sense of vision because it seemed to me mm-hmm. that he, that he had one because he didn't want to be a pop star. Mm-hmm. And he yeah, did, you. yeah. You know what I mean. And 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 I think that if you don't want to be something, and people around you are trying to make you into that thing, it's not going to work. And in his case, okay. it did not work. He did not become yeah. a mainstream pop star. Mm-hmm. And he didn't want to. For him, that was the death knell of his creativity. And Perkin, our longtime engineer, and I used to joke and call him the reluctant rock star. Um, <laughs> If you if you listen to the song on Just a Million Dreams, is the last album he did on Electra Records, there's a song called On the Run. And the lyrics are, What's going wrong? This ain't my song. Because they had to bring in all the, you know, session musicians and this producer and that producer, and they're packaging him and they're gonna do this photo shoot and dress him up to look at. And he's like, What the f- this is and it to him that was it was, it literally was was killing. He said they 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 sign you for for what they see as being special in you, and then they proceed to like beat that out of you to create, yeah. to try to package you into something else. And so for him, it, it really was not a, a situation that he was comfortable in at all because it didn't give him the freedom to really pursue his vision. And that's the other thing that you know it can be very seductive to have commercial success and the resources. He always, he would joke with Rick Ocasek, you know, Rick has all the resources and I would, but but thank God I'd, I wouldn't want to be, you know, a fungible, like something that you could sell to the masses. Right. Because 
you know, you know what I'm saying? Like he loved the fact that it might take a little bit more. He, it, he might be perceived as inaccessible, but he felt he truly believed in everything he did, that if people really listened to it, that they would find it special or inspiring or, you know, he, he loved that. He loved being in a position where people would hear his music, but at the same time, at what cost, you know, what price glory, like he didn't want to have to sell his soul, so to speak, and water things down and try to fit into a mold. He had to be free. So I think he was very genuine. I also love what you said about just a million dreams. I think, you know, that was at a point in his life where he had had a stroke. It was after 2012 that that was filmed. Yeah. And so he's very vulnerable, um, very, you know, there were there were parts of him that were were lost, but he was still very much there. His His soul and his spirit, as I said about the strong, intense life, force his doctors were always shocked at how he was a, given given what his body was doing at that point in time and even all the shows that he did after that time period from 2012 till he passed in 2016 if people realized what was actually happening to him physically uh they would be amazingly impressed right in, in, incredibly and he, so he was absolutely fearless but he allowed himself to be vulnerable and and I love that everybody loves everyone lo- whatever everybody loves Raymond yeah. yeah oh my gosh that was one of his favorite shows and just listening I miss that laugh so much yeah. listening to him laugh curb your enthusiasm was another one where the, the belly laughs so yeah. <laughs> it's like the Buddha he would like lean back and his eyes and his mouth would open wide it's like this yeah, yeah really contagious I, I just also want to kind of comment too because in, in in kind of like a two part way of what you were talking about this you know, the sense of like, you know, the humanity side of Alan, and then also this kind of like the visionary side of Alan, where, you know, on the one hand, you know, Alan never lost his edge with age, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, he's making a record, you know, 60s, 70s, it is like the most, it's like the darkest (laughs) fuck intense record ever made. It's apocalyptic. Exactly. And at the same time, though, the the deep level of like compassion and empathy that Alan mm-hmm. had as a person and the level of humanity that was that you can explore in his lyrics you know i mean it, it for me it like boils down to like i thought the first time we we you know me and my bandmate met alan like we rolled up and like we're on the elevator. I was sweating. I thought Alan was going to come to the door with like a fucking axe or chains or some shit. And that's just all from like what I've read and see. And, and then that first thing is like, he's like, Hey, how's it going? You want a tuna fish sandwich? Like, how are you doing? And I'm like, Holy <laughs> shit. He's like a fucking human being, you know, like this is crazy. But, um, yeah. but you yeah. learn that you, you, you saw it through his laughter, the compassion, the empathy, this kind of like the humanity side. And in so many of the, in so much of the, the content of the lyrics, there is this kind of, you know, the sense of this deep rooted sense of like, you know, of what's happening in the world of the underdog of, you know, you know, follow your dreams. And I think going back to him being a visionary and following his own vision, there is this kind of intensity of, you know, this kind of more spirit aspect of intensity where he clenches his fist or he's slicing his face on stage. And then this other sense of him where you saw it in the laughter in that documentary where he's just deeply concerned and cares about human beings. And I learned that firsthand where I was on tour in fucking Europe and uh, uh, this dude was backstage and told me that at a festival that Alan was playing, I think Liz was there too. um, 
Alan took the wrong entrance to the backstage and ended up like down in the boiler room and had like a fucking like 25 minute conversation with like the technician, like the boiler technician or something at the venue. I mean, no one gives yeah. a fucking shit about, you know, whatever, whatever. Yeah. But to Alan, whether you were the doorman or the president of the United States or fucking Elvis mm-hmm. Presley or your fucking yes. like cousin's best friend's uncle, like it's all this kind of like Alan really viewed things in this kind of like equally humanitarian way that I think is just really compelling that isn't really obviously seen so much you know that side sure sure and it's also not rewarded in the music industry very much (laughs) that 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 way of being you know what I mean he was very genuine and when you were with Alan and Jared can attest to this you were the only person in the world I mean he wasn't looking past you and if this was a backstage situation where there are a lot of people been in many situations where you can sense somebody's looking past you to say, oh, is there somebody, quote, important, <laughs> you know, this right. kind of thing. Right, right. That, that would never in a million years be be Alan. If he was in front of me and he genuinely wanted, he would ask. People would have said that to me. First thing on Alan's mouth would be, how are you doing? Totally. How, are, how are you feeling? And it was genuine. It was, you know, coming from a real place. And just the way he raised our son, Dante, he was you know, stay at home dad, basically, and was so loving and caring. And this was a man who, you know, the time Dante came along, he was 60 years old and had never even changed a diaper and, (laughs) you know, and and was, you know, up all night, sleeping all day. He completely shifted his world. um, and, And Dante became, you know, the love of his life. I mean, he was, he was such a caring, loving, uh, parent. And that, yeah. that's also something that you wouldn't isn't obvious from, you know, from his outside demeanor at times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's all. That's all so so cool to hear it, it, it. I don't know. I feel that illuminates even more about what comes out in his art. You know, somebody who's come up a, a couple of times is, is Rick Ocasek. I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of the cars, mm-hmm. of Rick's solo work, mm-hmm. of his production work. Um and to me, you know, he's one of the great, um, along with a few, you know, with others, you know, people like, I think of Todd Rundgren, I think of Miles Davis. What I think of in regards to them is these are people who are very famous, you know, but also very weird. And and I mean that in the best way, you know, and, and like held on to a, a kind of sensibility and an appreciation of something that, that would freak the squares out basically. And, and I always love that, that idea of suicide opening for the cars, you know, and, and what a, what a, uh, a mind fuck that must've been for some people in the audience. Right. I'm sure that it, it turned a few people on in a way that is like probably has stuck with them forever, you know, but obviously a lot of people were just baffled and had no idea what was going on or how to process it. I'm curious what, what do you think, Rick brought out in in Allen and vice versa. I mean, because they had a, a really uh, similar, obvious. It it's a little less than the way he and Marty work together in terms of their their collaborations together and pure, you know, uh, esteem or whatever. But I'm curious if if it was similar or different or or what sense you got of of how he worked with with Rick. Mm-hmm. No, it's it's a great question. I think Rick and Allen were like brothers. I mean, they were very close as, as friends and the connection was very genuine. And, and Rick also, I love that you said (laughs) the weirdness, um, quirky, 
through all the commercial success, still stayed stayed very true and very genuine to his vision. Yeah. And so they were they were definitely soulmates that way. And I think they did collaborate um, quite a bit. In fact, there's there's some music that has not been released that maybe in the future will be. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm hope I'm hopeful because it's pretty amazing. But yeah, Rick is absolutely was absolutely brilliant as a producer because he was able to to work with Alan and with Suicide and not, even though he brought this very um, polished, in a way, very polished uh, sound, he did it without taking away the rawness and the and the the essence of yeah. what Alan and or Suicide were doing. And that's that's an amazing thing to do. And I think it's because Rick himself was truly a very deep artist. When you think of the cars, you think, oh, big commercial success. It's very pop. Uh, he was very deep and an amazing person, a true gentleman, a very gentle soul. And in, in a sense, similar to Alan that way, they were both kind of, they could seem very intense on the surface, but very gentle, very gentle soul. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Rick got a lot of pushback, I have to say, in putting suicide on the. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was going to, I was also going to say, yeah, to harken back to when you were saying what, what was also a mind fuck was not just for the audience, but for Marty and Alan, because Alan, one of the funniest things Alan ever said to me was, you don't know shit until 30,000 fans are booing at you. Like that's, <laughs> yeah. that's when you know what living like, man. And he's like, yeah. And also, you know, the thing that I saw, you know, um, with Rick and Alan was, it's kind of reminded me of like Bowie and Iggy. You know, and that's a that's a cool comparison. Yeah, you know what I mean? And there's this sort of thing where Rick was also and Rick did this with a lot of, you know, producing Weezer's Blue Album and and countless other bands where, you know, Rick was kind of like this Bowie figure where he was such a proponent for what he thought was good music. And so in a conversation Mm -hmm. I had with Rick, um, we had done this like anniversary concert um, for Alan and. I remember speaking to Rick, who was there about, you know, I just was like, I don't remember exactly what I said, but just like, how the fuck did, you know, maybe one of the world's like most iconic, like pop songwriters in rock of all time end up producing maybe the most like fucked up controversial punk (laughs) band that wasn't even punk. I mean, like punk hated disco, suicide embraced disco and punk. Like they were so fucking like, hated and fucking outsider shit and and he's just like look good music's good music and you know it when you see it and you know he got it like i think he there was such a deep-rooted connection that the two of them had that lasted for so long i mean right up Mm -hmm. to i mean you know you saw it in the correspondences and all the art that they did together and the video stuff Mm -hmm. and photographs it really was you know such a deep connection but Rick yeah. would call Alan at like two or three in the morning and they would talk for hours. Yeah. And again, yeah. That, that laughing, you'd hear Alan laugh, like he must be on the phone with Rick. Uh, and it's interesting because he didn't have that kind of relationship with Marty. Right. He really right. didn't. I mean, they would come together. Marty, Marty would have his ideas and, you know, they didn't after, you know, obviously the early years of suicide, they rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed. Um, but it was a different dynamic. Very different. That's why I say like Rick was Rick and Alan were, tr- were like really soulmates in some regards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. That said, I mean, so there's a new suicide compilation uh, out uh, or, or about to be out. Um, 
And I was thinking, you know, some of those suicide records are are still pretty hard to get your hands on, especially mm-hmm. like like American Supreme. You know, I I think I tried looking. I don't know if it ever came out on vinyl. I could be wrong. Um, but um, I wonder, you know, the vault, the Vega vault. There's, as I understand it, just uh, such a wealth of stuff from from art to to writing to to a lot of recordings. Uh, are there a lot of suicide? Is there is there a lot in the suicide vault too? I mean, I'm I'm sure there's some suicide stuff in the Vega vault as well. What does the sort of future yes. look like for for specifically the suicide stuff? Mm-hmm. Well, Jared can talk a bit about the excavating of the vault, but with respect to the studio albums of Suicide, uh, BMG has licensed them for a, a little period of time. But, but you know, given the, the upcoming release, I think there's going to be a lot of interest in going back and reissuing because we've done the first album, the second album, right. A Way of Life and American Supreme. And I love A Way of Life so much. Right? Yeah, me that too. That's such a classic. That's, that's such a, it's such a good album. And it's like not talked about uh, no. on the way, the way the, the first two records are. Understand, I get it, you know, but still, right. yeah. what a great record. So we're working on that. Those those will all be coming out for sure, because that's, you know, we're on a mission here. We really feel that it's super important to expose the world to um, all things <laughs> yeah. suicide and Vega. And and Jared can talk to to the vault because there's there's a lot in terms of Vega recordings that are unreleased and suicide recordings. Yeah. And we're working with Marty on that as well, because Marty has a lot of live recordings and uh you know, studio outtakes and that sort of thing as well. So we're kind of combining our efforts with with Marty as well as um, pushing forward on on all of the things coming out from the Vega Vault. Yeah, there's a ton of material. It's massive. I mean, both from Vega and the suicide side of things. Um, you know, there's just and all sorts of things that I feel like you know fans and you know our artists would really love to hear interviews and alternate versions, um, you know, so cool. Yeah. I mean, I think there's just a lot of material that can get rolled out, um, you know, over time that, you know, and it's such a discovery. I, you know, we we kind of feel like archeologists, like every time we transfer something and also just the mystery of transferring, it could be labeled as one thing, one tape. And then knowing Alan, it could just be like, you know, on, on one side, it would be like fucking demos from Saturn strip record and yeah. then you flip it over and it's like you know fucking Alan recording shit off the TV or like <laughs> and it's like but it's also like but what's so amazing is like it, you see the b-side like these are the you know the final mixes of the, what became you know like Saturn strip or something and Alan's like yep heard enough of it after two songs he's like gonna use the fucking tape. I'll just cover that <laughs> <laughs> it's like holy shit that you know it's like you can get a fucking drum machine and Alan fucking ripping on shit and then yeah. um, you see it a lot too with like someone would hand Alan a tape and it would be like a live recording of him or some other band or whatever. And it'd be like 13 minutes of whatever it's supposed to be. And then Alan fucking using the tape to like make songs. So there's just <laughs> so much shit, you know, kind of like if you imagine going to like Jackson Pollock's studio or something, I always imagine just like stacks and stacks of like, you know, canvas, like whatever, like stacked mm-hmm. up from the ground up. And I think there's this, you know, kind of magic of just discovering all this material like we found this you know different you know earlier version of girl that was on this release surrender that's coming out next week from suicide 
And, you know, for me, like, I'm just like deeply rooted in the live material stuff. And I think they're like the, you know, the intensity and just like the fucking endless banter of, of shit. Like, you know, when they were over in Europe or when they were in the States. And I think getting more of that, like remastered and put out is so worthwhile and so historic, you know? Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's just kind of like combining efforts and just making, you know, something that was really crucial, I think, to everyone involved with Surrender is the first ever compilation of Suicide was just making the entire thing, you know, you know, be this kind of, you know, beyond or elevated where it's like this beautiful packaging you know from the chrome and embossing and the poster and the liner notes by henry rollins and the sequencing of the songs and the involvement of everyone involved it just became this thing that wasn't just like hey we're gonna put a greatest hits together which would be i mean alan would probably joke and be like the hitless wonders or something but right right (laughs) but it's really this kind of combined effort that if we're going to do something to really just kind of elevate things and marty's been great in the process of that as well. I mean, his ideas mm-hmm. and taking them on board of just, you know, how to really do something fresh and how to do something in a new way. I think it makes, you know, discovering newer unseen things by maybe one of the most influential bands of all time. You know, it's like historical archaeological work. I mean, that's at least how we, you know, you know, Michael Handis and I and Liz feel very much like going into the Vega vault or the suicide vault and just trying yeah. to, you know, put things out and do them in a way that's just feels like, you know, we just wanted to put together in the best way possible not just kind of rush things or just throw things Mm -hmm. out there and just do them and and treat it with the respect that, you know, that Alan and Marty did or Alan solo spent this kind of time making the music and making the art, you know, if that makes sense. Oh, that absolutely makes sense. And I think it's, I, I mean, uh, it's clear that the kind of um, the kind of work you're doing is very different uh, than what we sometimes see when an artist passes away and uh, the vaults are raided very haphazardly. And mm-hmm. uh, you know what I mean? That For doesn't sure. that doesn't that doesn't come across at all. And especially because I mean, just like anybody else, like there was a, you know, uh when it came out and then, you know, mutator since and, and Alan Vega after dark, there's like this feeling of like, well, is this, st- there's always the question you have, right? Like, well, did this stuff not get released for a reason? And, mm-hmm. uh, that's certainly not the way it feels with these, with those records, you know, because they're just, they're so incredible. And if there is a reason, it almost feels like, well, Alan was just making so much stuff. You get the sense that maybe he just didn't even want to slow down and say, mm-hmm. "All right, well, let's let's figure out how to turn this into a record." So I'm so glad that the, that you all are that you you two are doing that. And of course, mm-hmm. you know, having worked on um, Liz, you've got a record that's that's coming out very soon that you worked yeah. with Jared on and and your son Dante. Uh, the fact that you called it "Keep It Alive." Uh, mm-hmm really does seem to speak overall to that feeling that you have and it, it feels very different than than so many artists who whose archives are released in some fashion or another and I mean I'm kind of a I'm kind of a, a I'm kind of a junkie when it comes to this stuff musically so like mm-hmm. I'm the kind of guy who who does want to hear like nine outtakes of the same song exactly. and and like a and, a, and like a like a long interview with somebody so like I'm certainly not like 
I'm I'm a mark when it comes to this stuff. So you put out a you know a B sides collection or an unreleased thing from an artist I care about and I, and I want to get into it. But the care mm-hmm. and the kind of like uh, the intentionality that you guys are bringing to the, to this these projects is is very apparent. And and Sacred Bones and In the Red are clearly are uh, labels that seem just to care just as much as the two of you do. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's a really cool thing to see. Yes. No, Jason, I, I love this because, you know, we feel very, very strongly. Not only did Alan give us his blessing to release material that was previously unreleased, but we feel a really strong connection to each other and to this mission that we're on and that we're other people are kind of, again, being magnetized to this. The the Sacred Bones, the in the red, you know, Larry Hardy, all of the people who are kind of on this mission with us together are really feeling that, that it's coming from a very genuine place. And what you said about Alan, it was, that's exactly what happened. He was so focused on just creating, I would be the one who would have to say, hey, we really should pull some of this stuff together and, and make a release. <laughs> make yeah, a release. Sure. yeah, yeah, so there yeah. was so much stuff that didn't get released simply because we were on to the next and then you're on to the next and then you're on to the next. And it wasn't until, thank God for Jared, because Jared was the one who reached out to us back in, what was it, like 2014, Jared? Mm-hmm. So that was the beginning of collaborating with Alan, where, and then I would go in the studio and pull some stuff, and Alan, then we started recognizing, he's like, holy shit, there's a lot of stuff in the vault. <laughs> he called it the Vega vault. He's like, yeah. there's a lot of stuff in the vault there. Holy <laughs> shit. He's like, you know, when I'm gone, you should be you should be putting this stuff out. I wouldn't be, you know, like, he liked the idea that people would, after I'm gone, people might appreciate what, you know, that I wasn't really just, you know, hanging around watching Everybody Loves Raymond. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So so he just in his very self-effacing way recognized that, but also really genuinely gave Jared and I his blessing because, you know, having worked in the studio with me and even though it was a relatively short time with Jared, they connected right away. It was like a Henry Rollins, a Rick Ocasek kind of moment where like it was just immediate. And when he met me, it's the same kind of thing where, you know, he really felt that connection right away. So he would be very, very comfortable what we'd be doing. He's he's smiling. He says, see, fuck them. They know they now they're, yeah. now they're listening to this shit, right? It's it wasn't like, so bad after all. It wasn't so scary. And I think between Liz and I, you have, you know, obviously Liz that spent decades in the studio and decades living together as well as you know from myself who's you know studied the music before I met Alan and been a major fan and also just in my interactions in the years of knowing him and you know and studying the work and the archives that you know and and both you know Liz's instincts as a musician and producer my instincts as a musician and producer it really does allow us to again if this was like you know some you know pop artist of today or maybe some like you know rap artist from the night maybe liz and i wouldn't be better suited to be going through the archaeology process of the archives but for alan i think we're able to determine and tell like what's finished what's unfinished what's a fragment what's a song where was alan going you know like there's sort of like blueprints even though that they're not clear of all the time of like this is supposed to go you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, but Alan never really worked in a linear way to begin with. Um, but I think there is this very careful approach that tries to honor Alan's art in, you know, curating and going through 
that, you know, as much as we, again, don't get me wrong, I agree with you. Like, I love to hear, you know, the Stooges, like there was like a fun house. It was like 50 million versions of like every song. And some are like, <laughs> I love that shit too. And I'm just like, I just want to hear fucking Alan talk and be interviews. And I just sit in the session with, you know, with Liz and we just solo his vocals and listen to, mm. you know, because you can yeah. hear in the beginning, hey, is this fucking shit on? Are we fucking rolling? <laughs> hey, hey, fuck, you know, and then boom, it's like we listen to that like 20 times in a row because it just, it makes us laugh too. But, um, I think there is just this kind of consideration over, you know, the work and making sure that, you know, it's not just putting it out for the sake of putting it out, but there is intention and that there is, you know, a, you know, a careful process of, you know, complete, like, you know, finishing the work or putting a frame on the work or trying to look at the blueprints and assemble them you know, and, you know, Alan left some room and then there's other areas where we can both, you know, we both say, Hey, this is not something that, you know, is really, you know, designed to go out there. But then again, you know, Alan worked with, he experimented with sound. So maybe one sound could be used in a future way with like collaborating with other artists. Like maybe we Mm -hmm. put things together and get other artists involved in the vault with, you know, you give a, you know, someone, you know, like a Trent Reznor, a few sounds, and let him finish the song. Like we have a lot of ideas too of just how to get more people involved in the process, which could be exciting. Oh, and that's yeah. something that Alan would would have absolutely embraced himself. And, and it's consistent with how he collaborated with other people. It's like, here are some ideas. Now you run with it. Yeah. So, you know, beyond just releasing, pr- producing and mixing and releasing fully more fully formed ideas, as Jared said, there's so it's like a, there's a sound library that's infinite of sounds like how did you get these sounds? We would sometimes spend hours and hours in a session creating one sound and and the sound is so unique that again you know somebody could do something really special with that yeah that's that's beautiful to think about and 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 the fact that 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 the reason that that alan vega is uh as known as he is and is revered as he is has so much to do with the fact that other artists people like rick okasic people like henry rollins of course people like the two of you People like Bruce Springsteen spreading the good word of Alan, right? So I feel like there's nothing more um, in keeping with his uh, his legacy than the idea of turning stuff over. Because I mean, I think so much about, especially when an artist is is physically gone, you you you're you're torn because you want to be you want to be reverent to a certain degree but there's nothing reverent about the uh the the spirit of Alan Vega right like all mm-hmm. of this stuff should be thank you m- manipulated and, and and explored and and handed over to somebody who's going to take it someplace that he never would have taken it himself exactly because and that Jason, is honoring him right you know exactly and that that was his whole ethos that's what he would say i'm a different person today we're different jared and i are different today so yeah. is everyone else we're living yeah. in a different world it's evolving the mutator baby yeah right that's <laughs> yeah. what he was all about so yeah. when pe- so we have to kind of laugh sometimes when people question you know what is this about it's exactly as alan would want yeah and he wouldn't say like oh alan wouldn't have mixed it that way or alan would have cleaned it up that way he these gave us his blessing to do that and to pass it along this is what he was doing he was that is his gift to the universe yeah which- and we're honoring <laughs> that gift 
Yeah, which Alan wouldn't have wanted us to do that? Please be specific, right? Because there's a exactly. lot of Alans. <laughs> exactly. And it's, it's, yeah. also, it's also this mantra of like, don't look back. I think what's really yes. interesting, and it, you hear this with a lot of artists where if they put out a record, you know, like I remember like reading an interview with Lou Reed and he wouldn't listen to his previous records or never listen to them again. Or Jason Pierce is spiritualized as like, you know, once he's made a record, like it's out there, he, you know, he's not going to go back and listen to it. I think with Alan, like his work is, you know, like he, you know, he didn't look back and there's a lot of like funny stories where like, if you put on something that he did like 20 something years ago and he'd be like, what the fuck is this? It's really good. He, it just, there's like this <laughs> disconnect almost. And I think in the same sense, you know, that he's traveling at his own speed, which, you know, for many artists, it's like light speed. You know, a lot of artists like to take their time and build a song up and it might take six months and you build a song or one, you know, you know, 10 minutes or like two weeks or six months or whatever it is, the process of writing a song, Alan was just working and working and working and working. And so by default, he wouldn't even, even if he amassed, like if Liz was in the studio for two weeks, he would amass like, you know, 20 songs or like 10 songs or whatever it is. And he'd already be motivated to get on to the next thing. So he's just, it's not because like, oh, this, this is not a, uh, you know, up to snuff and I'm not going to put this out. It's just like, I'm on to the fucking next thing. I did this show with these paintings. I'm on to the next thing. And I think yeah. there's just this incredible process of, you know, and you can see it in just like the, the performances and all the tracks that he was working on of just like, you know, it wasn't a, like uncaring. It was almost kind of moving on to the next thing and don't mm -hmm. look back. Because yeah. again, it was all about creating something. It wasn't so much about how are we going to release that. I used to joke and say I was kind of the de facto manager, right, by default. And my job was to get me out of this thing. <laughs> he didn't want to do anything that didn't involve being in the studio. I mean, he'd go and he'd do shows and everything, and he'd be very gracious once he was there and in it. But if it was left up, left up to his own devices, he'd be at home writing and drawing and in the studio creating sounds and you know, he wasn't driven to, I must have commercial success. I must release this album. Da, da, da. That was all me being like, I want people to hear this shit. This is so cool. Let's, you know, let's get that out there and let people hear it. Yeah. Um, he was always shy that way. You know, he really, that's another thing that people don't realize. He was very, very shy in many respects, which is kind of interesting. And well, it's always difficult as an artist too, right? I think you feel very vulnerable once you put something into the universe. People, how, how are people going to receive it? Yeah, yeah. Wanted to, I don't think he did, really didn't want to have to deal with that in some respects. Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't want that to affect what he did next. That's the key. Yeah. He really yeah. didn't want that to affect what he did next. He wanted to continue to be free to do whatever it was he was doing without that. Yeah. yeah. Which isn't easy because you know you need to eat and live and. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Again, it's not a. That goes yeah. back to the refrigerator box on the Bowery, though. That's <laughs> what he, his mental state was. I don't need any kind of validation. I don't need any monetary. I don't need to monetize this. I'm just going to do what I do, and if people like it, great. But I can't. I can't do something based on how it how it's going to be received. Mm -hmm. Well. I am so glad that he spent his life honoring that. And I'm so glad that the two of you are doing what you're doing with his work and with your own work. Uh, and uh, and I can't thank you enough for stopping by to to hang out and talk about it because it's it's been a blast to 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 hear all this stuff and and to share um you know, to share these thoughts with you. It's been fantastic. Thank you so much for doing it.
Thanks, Jason. Thanks for your time. Really, really appreciate it. Really, thank you, Jason. It's been amazing talking with you about it. Thanks for listening to another episode of Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. You can find show notes and miscellany at Aquarium Drunkard, and you can support the podcast by checking out our Patreon page. AD is an independent outfit, so your contribution means a lot to us. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I write, host, and produce the show. Our audio is edited by Angie Horton, and the show is executive produced by Aquarium Drunkard's founder, Justin Gage. Don't miss his weekly Aquarium Drunkard show every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Pacific time on Sirius XMU. Transmissions is a part of the Talk House Podcast Network. Uh, you can find me at Jason P. Woodbury on social media, so feel free to reach out. I love uh, hearing from listeners, and I'd love to hear from you. Uh, I, I think a couple weeks ago I used the term transmissions heads to describe the fan base of the show, and, uh, and uh, Matt Arnett... Uh, who works with the great Lonnie Hawley, reached out to me to to say that I had missed the obvious one, which is transmissionaries. So I really like the idea of calling y'all transmissionaries. And if uh, if that term describes you, feel free to head uh, out and evangelize for the show by posting about our episodes wherever you share stuff that you are digging. Uh, so feel free to plug us in your social media feeds. And if you want to uh, do a little bit more, you can head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating or uh, even better, a five-star rating and a review. Just uh, type out a few words about what you like about the show, uh, and that helps new folks find uh, find it. So I appreciate that one way or the other. Uh, I hope you will come back next week, next Wednesday. I'll be joined by uh, Kurt Vile had a really fun and loose talk with KV about his new record, which absolutely rules. Watch my moves. So uh, so come back and check that out. Again, one more plug for the, for the killer new Suicide Comp, Surrender. Uh, check that out. And of course, head over to Sacred Bones uh, and In the Red to check out more from Liz and, uh, and some of the great Alan uh, Vega posthumous releases. Um, check out uh, Alan Vega After Dark, which features liner notes by me. Uh, thanks again to Ben Vaughn for for extending that incredible opportunity. It was an absolute honor to, to uh, contribute to that. All right, we'll be back next week. Until then, stay safe and be well. Uh, this transmission is concluded. Black and soldier. Woo!